Hello, I'm Lara Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's Community Cookbook Shop. Today, we're talking about Chinese food, particularly Sichuan food, with one of the Western world's foremost experts on the cuisine, Fuchsia Dunlop. Fuchsia fell in love with Sichuan food in the 90s, when she went to Chengdu after winning a British Council scholarship. She became so interested in the region's food that she enrolled at the Sichuan Institute of Higher Cuisine, becoming the first Westerner to do so. She has continued to travel to China and study Chinese food ever since, writing for publications such as The New Yorker and Lucky Peach, releasing several cookbooks, and winning four James Beard Awards for her writing along the way. Her latest book, The Food of Sichuan, revisits her classic book, Land of Plenty, adding 70 new recipes, gorgeous photos, and the experience she's gained over the past 20 years to the book's existing recipes. She visited our kitchen in October 2019, where she was in conversation with Seattle cookbook author Xiao Ching Chow. Here's Fuchsia Dunlop and the food of Sichuan. familiar faces. Thank you for being such enthusiasts of really great Chinese cooking. And thanks to Book Larder, I have to say they're very good about hand-selling books. And in this day and age where a lot of people buy books online, you know, it's so wonderful to have a place like this where there's community and where they actually know the books that they're trying to sell. And if you tell them what you're looking for, they'll find you the perfect book. So thanks to Book Larder. It's so wonderful to see Fuchsia again. I was just reminding her that when we talked last, back in 2003, it was on the phone with a bad connection. And I was like, oh, I think I'm missing some details here. I was very sad. And this is, you know, of course, before modern uh, telecoms. So it's just wonderful to, to have this experience here tonight. What I thought we would do is talk a little bit about the new book and then kind of go into a little bit of the process of making a book and uh, writing recipes, recording recipes, things like that, and then transition to some tensions. And then finally, ending on some journey, because it's been 25 years or so since, since you first went to Chengdu. So... I think the most obvious question is, now that we have this brand new edition, what is actually different? What's new? Well, there are about 70 new recipes, plus new variations of some of the other recipes in the book. And also, I ended up retesting all the recipes, refining them and changing them. And I think they're much better. And I even, when I started revising the book, I was a little scared (laughs) <laughs> because, you know, it was a nice book. And I thought, what if I mess it up? <laughs> you know? And then I thought, Fuchsia, you wrote it. You know, you, you, you've got more experience. You have to be able to do it better. So then I started daring to go into even gongbao chicken and fish-fragrant eggplants. And I think they're even better. So, and then also I do have 15 or 20 years more experience and I have gone on exploring Sichuan, interviewing chefs, recording recipes. And so um, partly I just wanted to reflect that knowledge in the introduction, which has expanded the historical information, information on new ingredients like the green Sichuan pepper, which wasn't on the scene when I was first studying in, in Chengdu. Um, and also I wanted to reflect some of the regional diversity mm-hmm. of Sichuan because it's a huge 
area. You know, it's like a European country. And there are many, particularly in the south of Sichuan, the most gorgeous food in places like Lushan, where the giant Buddha is, Zigong, the ancient salt capital. There are all these fantastic country recipes and, you know, different ingredients and different styles of cooking. And the other thing is that um, a lot of people have commented on the original book that there weren't enough photos. (laughs) And um, so I'm hugely grateful to my publishers for getting me to work again with the amazing Yuki Sugura, who's a Japanese photographer living in London. And I just love working with her and she loves working with me. And so it was a complete joy. And I cooked all the food in my kitchen in London and we had all these shoots. So I think the book is much improved just by that alone, that it's more illustrated. And also there are location photographs because we wanted to bring, you know, give people a picture of some of the beautiful scenery of Sichuan and, you know, the way people live. And so an old friend of mine, have any of you, do any of you watch The Great British Bake Off? (laughs) Well, (laughs) it's not totally relevant. In, I think, 2016, one of the finalists was a tall Englishman called Ian, who made a chocolate well. Well, he was my flatmate in London when I was um, writing the first edition, Land of Plenty. And um, at the time, he couldn't cook at all. And he was, um, he was just existing on terrible, um, you know, end-of-the-day, cut-price supermarket rubbish. But he would come home every day and there would be all these Sichuanese dishes on the table. But um, apart from being a good baker, he's a travel photographer. And so he and I did a trip... And he, we've got some of his wonderful pictures. And I think he was quite pleased to be in on the, the new edition as well as the old one when he was merely a guinea pig. So we have you to thank, right, for, for our entertainment as well. You added all these new recipes. You wanted to revise some of the, the original recipes because you've learned more. Like, what are some of the things that you learned that you felt like were so important to include in this edition? I would say, I mean, the first thing is that just I'm a better cook. You know, I've gone on and on cooking and I would say that I have a more sort of holistic view of the cuisine. I'm just more experienced. It sounds really funny, but my comfort food is now Chinese food. And what is more instinctive to me is to take a Chinese approach to cooking. So even if I'm making Western food, I will use my Chinese knife and think about flavor in the way that I learned in China. So I would say... Yeah, but in that sense, my my approach has changed. Let's dive into that a bit. When you say that you approach Western food from the Chinese perspective, give us an example of that. Well, one thing is that I'm very used to, I mean, I, I very much respect the Chinese view of the healthy way to eat. Chinese food is all about balance. And I'm always trying to get people to understand, as I'm sure you are, there's this terrible old stereotype of Chinese food as being unhealthy. You know, it's takeout, it may be delicious, but it's not the sort of food you should eat every day. Mm-hmm. And this is so unfair and untrue because the Chinese really understand about eating for health and for balance. And so I have got used over the years to approaching how to eat in a rather Chinese way, um, which is to say that if I'm feeling a little unwell or off colour, I have on several occasions being able to avoid taking the medicines that my doctor said I should take simply by changing my diet and in particular by eating less rich and heating foods. 
it's a bit complicated to explain. But food has properties. Yeah, and actually you are what you eat and it really works to sort of adjust your diet. I actually, and this is something that always happens to me in America, that I am lucky to be invited out for lots of fantastically delicious food. But after a couple of weeks in America, I always start, unless I'm eating Chinese food, I always start craving simple soups, simple stir-fried vegetables, and I start having that feeling of shanghuo, too much inner heat. And the fact that I think in the American diet, there's, and, and in Western food in general, when you talk about good food, there's an overemphasis on flavor and pleasure. And healthy eating is almost put in opposition to that. So you go and a good, food, a good meal might be full of butter and cream and meat and loads of desserts, and it's fantastically delicious. But then you have a day of raw kale and, you know, and, and sort of penance for your indulgence the day before. <laughs> that they've made a whole industry of New Year's resolution diet. Yeah. Right? But I always so. say um, in China, you can have your gastronomic indulgence and the antidote at the same meal. Indeed. I went to, do you know the Fat Duck restaurant? Have you heard of Heston Blumenthal? You know, one of the best restaurants in Britain. And a Malaysian Chinese friend really wanted to go there. And we went together and we had a really wonderful meal. And it was incredible. He's a brilliant chef and it was so clever and fun and inventive. But she remarked at the end of the meal that the last few dishes had all been very rich desserts, creamy, sweet and so on. And that we both felt sort of comatose with sugar and overeating. And she said, you know, if you, should, if you went to, for a Chinese banquet at one of the finest restaurants in China, you could have 40 courses and you would finish with a light soup or some fruit or something that would restore you and make you feel very shuful, very comfortable and well, and you'd go home and sleep well. And so I would say in that sense, I have, I, I just find that one can learn a lot from the Chinese way of eating. Mm-hmm. And that I have become slightly critical sometimes of Western... Well, I know Western food is a terrible generalisation, just as Chinese food is a terrible generalisation. But I can be quite critical of Western food in that sense. Um, yeah, and also I think that eating in China, one gets spoiled with variety. And Chinese people... It's actually hilarious how certain people make these outrageous generalizations about Western food in the same way that Westerners do about Chinese food. But um, the typical thing people say is, oh, Western food is very simple and very monotonous. <laughs> and people in China just can't believe that you, you really would be expected to just eat a whole hunk of meat and potatoes and maybe not even a vegetable or just a bit of a raw salad, and that's a meal. Because the equivalent, a meal of equivalent status in China with friends, with guests, even if it's quite simple, not expensive, you tend to have a lot of different ingredients and several different dishes and so on. So um, I would just say that when I see the food that I grew up with and other Western countries, that I see it both from my original point of view and from a kind of Chinese perspective. So I'm always looking in two directions now. Um, you talked a little bit about the um, sort of the light, clear soups. And I want to have a moment of appreciation for these Chinese style soups that we consume as sort of like to wash down all the heavy stuff that you might have eaten before. But to a Western palate, again, generalization, 
it might seem very bland. So talk a little bit about these soups and the, and their role and their importance. Yeah, well, I always say that um, you can really tell a Chinese restaurant that's aimed at a mainly non-Chinese clientele because all the dishes will be really exciting. They'll all be really tasty and exciting. A restaurant aimed at Chinese people will also have dishes that are what they call qingdan, um, sort of pure and light and delicate. Sometimes translated this word qingdan terribly into English as bland or insipid. But um, <laughs> things like very light broths that may not even be salted, but just have a, the light flavour of the original ingredients. Stir-fried vegetables without um, dried shrimps or pork fat or black beans, just stir-fried vegetables or blanched vegetables, really simple things. Um, the whole point of Chinese food is that they aren't as exciting. They're meant to be a foil to the bolder flavours. Um, they're meant to set them off. They're meant to make you feel comfortable. So with a Chinese meal, like even with Sichuan, which is so famous for bold and spicy tastes, it's not all mala. And even in Chongqing, which is the sort of HQ of really spicy food in Sichuan, you might have one dish which is ladzaji, chicken with chilies, on a plate this size, a pile of chilies with bits of deep fried chicken. <laughs> but you'll also have a very light soup, no chili, stir fried greens. And it's actually a very lovely way to eat. So just as you said, you'll have a bite of that really spicy chicken. And then you think, mm, well, what would be nice now? Well, maybe some tofu soup to cleanse the palate. So you, you constantly create a journey. And one of the advantages of this is that it's, it's more interesting. Like if you just bombard your palate with all the sexy tastes, then I think you just get a bit weary of it and they lose their impact. Um, if you intersperse them with um, more delicate dishes, then they assert themselves better. And also you feel healthy and well afterwards. Yeah, so and, this and that's is, what it, that having that many dramatic flavors obliterates your palate a little bit too, right? Yeah, I think that's true. And there's a whole strain in Chinese gastronomy, and particularly the most the more discriminating people, of appreciation for the ben wei, the essential root taste of ingredients. So something like in Cantonese cooking, if you have a very fresh, beautiful fish. You don't do very much to it. You use culinary technique to just purify the flavor and give it a bit of extra umami, maybe soy sauce, maybe a bit of ginger spring onion. But the whole point is to frame that lovely taste of good ingredients. And the same with vegetable stir fries and, and all kinds of dishes. And I think that's another problem of having, if everything is full of black beans and deep fried and mala, then it just, you know, it's, it's like listening to heavy metal music on top volume all day, <laughs> gastronomically. You know, all right for a while, but then... <laughs> Part of, I think, the struggle with... Um, I find when, when people come to cooking classes, they come in with this, these preconceived notions of what Chinese food should be, or that they come at it from that Western perspective and they want to add more ingredients into it, right? So how did you situate yourself in this cooking to start with? Now have you grown over time? You know, any advice for, for our audience here about how they should consider approaching this food? I mean, I think this, this idea of balance and the idea that, that it's a whole system of food. And I, and I think the other thing is that... Um, that I think one should really respect Chinese culinary culture as a great 
cultural and culinary artefact. It's very sophisticated. It's very discerning. Certainly more sophisticated than English food culture. I mean, everywhere has good things to eat. Every, everywhere has meaningful things to eat. But China is unusual in the amount of thought and attention devoted to food for hundreds, for thousands of years. You know, there are poems from 2,500 years ago on the pleasures of all kinds of delicacies, on the art of cooking. That's the first thing, is just to, to listen, to, to look at a different way of approaching food and gastronomy and to understand that I think the Western world has a lot to learn from China in this respect. I mean, particularly about health, because everyone needs to eat more. I mean, we have a crisis of health, of environmental sustainability. And I think Chinese cuisine offers real solutions for how to eat more healthily and more sustainably, i.e. less meat and fish and stuff, while still having fantastically tasty food. So, yeah, and, and I suppose it's just that I'm, I'm just always going on about these things because I think they're really important. And I do think that the craziest Western misconception about Chinese food is that it's unhealthy. Mm -hmm. It's just ridiculous. This, you know, we just have to. Well, I mean, if, if you start from the perspective of fast food, Chinese cooking, where there's, you know, General's chicken and all that kind of stuff, then it's hard to, to yeah. get over that. I mean, so. to be fair, um, an awful lot of Chinese people judge Western food on the basis of KFC, Pizza Hut and McDonald's. I had, um, when I was at the cooking school, one of my classmates and I were chatting in our lunch break. So this was in 1995. And he said, oh, Fuchsia, I don't like Western food. He's like, there wasn't any Western food in Chengdu. And I'm like, what, what, how had he come to this conclusion? And he said that he'd had KFC once and he thought it was really disgusting. <laughs> it goes both ways. Yeah. You're sort of a, a recipe detective because you're out there researching and talking to people. What's your process for that? Well, I suppose that when I do a dish, I want to understand how it's made and where it comes from. Although I do consult lots of written sources, so I have a huge library of Chinese cookbooks and they're very useful for reference, actually I prefer to collect recipes in kitchens and by interviewing chefs and also by interviewing many people because you get a different perspective from... I mean, I can learn something from many different people and they all go into the same recipe. And this is slightly complicated. Well, I, I would say the first thing is that a lot of Chinese recipe books are a little vague or they're not rigorously tested. There's a, a, a sort of um, gap often between the chefs who are very skilled in the kitchen but are not very literary, literate, and then the people writing cookbooks who are, are often you know, the wordy people. And I think that sometimes things get lost in between them. So you know, there may be omissions or not enough detail or, or errors and so on. And I find that I really like to watch people in the kitchen. And by now, I can, I know enough to sort of know what's going on and to ask the right questions. And that's the other thing. When I can go into a restaurant now often in China and eat something, and I maybe have the chance to have a brief conversation with the chef. And I know the, the one or two questions that I really need to know. And then I can attempt to recreate it. And the other thing is that people in oral recipes, people often leave things out because some things just appear blindingly obvious to them or they don't even think about it. So they just say, do this, do that. And they've missed out a lot of things. But again, because I have a lot of experience by now, I can actually say, 
And did you add a marinade? Did you blanch it first? Then what did you do? And sort of piece it together like that. And so I try to be very thorough and to um, often repeatedly ask the same question if I'm not sure or ask different people. And I would say that the process of researching recipes has got much easier because when I started out, so with the first edition of the book, I would be testing recipes at home in London. And then if I had an issue, I would write it down on a piece of paper and wait six months until I went back to Chengdu. And then I would find a chef and corner him in a tea house and say, please, can you answer this question? Now I've got them all on WeChat. So I'm literally in the kitchen about to put in the vinegar or something. And then I text someone in China and say, by the way, you know, what should I do here? And they often get back to me right away. And so this is really fantastic. And I'm very grateful also to so many chefs all over China who have been willing to answer my questions for years. So do you mostly interview professional chefs then, or do you talk to home cooks as well? Home cooks, taxi drivers. I've got so many recipes. Sichuanese men often are really good cooks. And um, there are so many times that I get into a taxi and we have a conversation about why you're here, what you're doing and stuff. And then when the taxi driver finds out that I'm a cook and I'm interested in researching Sichuanese cuisine, he then says, oh, I make a really good you know, a fish and pickled vegetable stew, and then tells me in meticulous detail how to make it. So I get out my notebook and I write it all down. And, um, and I have, like, I could do a whole book of taxi driver's recipes. Yeah. Um, you heard it here first. <laughs> yeah, and also I'm just, but I, I'm also really interested. There's a level of professional cookery uh, which is um, very technique-driven and very knowledgeable, and when you can talk about particular cooking um, cooking methods and its more professional vocabulary. But I'm also totally interested in country cooking and, you know, my friend's grandmother's pickle making and things like that. And that's a completely different thing because it's often done by judgment and instinct, less professional vocabulary, but also really delicious food. That's a nice segue for one of the, the tensions that I thought we might dig into, which is you went to professional cooking school to learn proper technique. But I imagine that that there are a lot of foods, unless it's banquet-style cooking, there are a lot of foods that are just perhaps slightly more refined versions of home cooking, right? So talk a little bit about that. How do those interplay? I suppose one thing is that um, with restaurant cooking, you get um, more extravagant use of oil and more complex cooking methods. So, for example, you know the velveting method. So you chop up an ingredient and you clothe it in a light sort of starch coating. And then it's called guoyo, pass it through the oil. So you, you sort of poach it in oil that's not too hot and then strain it out. And it has this lovely slippery mouthfeel. And then you pour the oil out of the wok and then you fry your aromatics and you put the food back in and briefly toss it. And that's a way of keeping ingredients amazingly tender but people don't do that at home because they don't have a pot for deep frying oil and they would regard that often as rather extravagant. So at home, you would be more likely to have xiao chao, small stir frying, something like gongbao chicken when everything just goes one by one into the wok. The other thing is that I would say that I'm quite professional in the way I cut things. So I'm very even and very small or, or, you know, I I think a lot about the way that I'm cutting and that's a more professional thing. So um, people cooking at home, it might be less even or a bit chunkier depending on the skill level. 
Yeah. A couple of examples. <laughs> Great. How does anthropology play into some of your research? I feel like you're a cultural anthropologist too, digging really deep. Well, I, I mean, I'm just fascinated by food in its cultural and historical context. Since the beginning, I have always collected not only recipes, but also stories about food and um, information about the way people view food and about festivals and things that you might think of as being more ethnographic. And I think it's a really interesting way of, of learning recipes mm. to know about. And, and it's also, I think, um, I, I think that learning about food is a really good way to learn about another culture in a sort of politically neutral way and a way that's all about hospitality and generosity and affection and that you can learn so much about anywhere, but particularly, again, China, because it's such a food-oriented culture, you can learn so much about the country and about religious practice and history and um, all kinds of things through the food. So I like to put that into the books too. Segwaying off of that, you know, a lot of people are fearful of cooking Asian cuisines in general or, or anything that's unfamiliar or has a lot of ingredients because um, they... They don't know if it tastes right. So this idea, there's a, a word in Chinese called zheng, like something that tastes proper. If, you, if you've never tasted that food before, how do you know it tastes proper, right? And how do you, like, that's just, that's something that I think people struggle with. Well, I suppose that that's an argument for really trying to meticulously test recipes, and also photography is helpful because although t you know, taste is related to how something is cooked as well and what it looks like, how dry it is, how wet it is, these kind of things. And I totally know that feeling because I can remember distinctly the first time I cooked any Chinese food. So I was quite an accomplished European cook in my teens. I was quite serious about cooking. And then probably when I was in my early 20s, I cooked some Chinese recipes from a book by Yan Kitso, um, who you may know, she did a wonderful book called Classic Chinese Cookbook. And I just remember that feeling that I, I had no handle at all on what was going on, on, on the processes, on the, the flavours. I was just following step by step her instructions. But her recipes were very good and she was a very serious tester of recipes. And so the results were great. And I suppose that can help you a lot. That's the importance of the recipe. And also, I think with Sichuanese food, people in, in the West now have many more chances to taste the real thing, to have an idea about what they're aiming for. And some people manage to travel as well. So I think it's not totally abstract and distant anymore. It's, mm -hmm. it's a bit closer if you want to find out. Yeah, but I mean, and the other thing is just, in, in a sense, I want people to make food that is tasty and enjoyable. It doesn't have to be perfect. I mean, I hope that the recipes I do will work, but people always improvise slightly. It's really interesting to taste my recipes cooked by other people. People often sort of <laughs> cut something out or substitute something or just do something by eye. I think that's fine. You know, the most important thing about food is not some kind of crazy perfectionism. It's making nice, healthy food within your budget for the people you care about. That's the most important thing. You have permission <laughs> to riff and to mm. improvise. I think people sometimes need that permission. Can we talk a little bit about back to the, the simplicity of some of the dishes and how in that simplicity there's a lot of complexity too, right? How do you appreciate the nuances and how beautiful that can be without wanting to muck it up? 
One thing that is really important to me, and every grain of rice, my previous cookbook, was meant to be a very accessible, simple, weeknight supper sort of book on the whole. When you're writing a book about a region, I think the idea is to try and represent as many different facets of it as possible, to show it in its complexity, and you can't put everything in. But you know, in that book, there are some more complicated recipes, banquet recipes, to show that side of the cuisine. But I also think it's really important that it should be accessible and it should contain lots of recipes that people can make easily at home. And so I have tried, and I always try, there are a lot of recipes that require very few ingredients and which are surprisingly delicious. And I think particularly with Sichuanese food, because of this art of mixing flavours, so even something like a smacked cucumber salad in a garlicky sauce. So trendy now, by the way. Yes. <laughs> it's in every magazine. Yeah. <laughs> and other cookbooks that have nothing to do with Chinese food. Yeah. And, but I hope this recipe is one people won't know very well. This is a particular Sichuanese flavour, Wei, garlicky paste flavour. And that's, yeah, I mean, that's, you, you make a sweetened soy sauce with a few spices, which has a very nice flavour, and then some chilli oil and some garlic. And it's just incredibly delicious and very healthy. And I, I think also that you said earlier that people sometimes feel intimidated by Chinese cooking and they think, oh, I'm going to need all these obscure ingredients and it's going to be really complicated. I think it's important to remember that it is a very sophisticated cuisine and it's hugely diverse. But at some level, Chinese food is just what Chinese people rustle up at home every night. And home cooking is quite straightforward. And it's a bit different from, you know, what Western people would normally do. But it's not really complicated. It doesn't have to be. And that all you need to get set up is a quite limited number of seasonings, soy sauce, vinegar, sesame oil. I mean, it's really not that many. And once you have them, so you just have to make one trip to Chinatown or to a good Chinese shop, and then you can make many dishes, and you can also use the techniques and the flavours to cook whatever you have in your supermarket, in your garden. It's true. Let's talk a little bit about um, the, the book writing process, because I think a lot of people are always curious, you know, how long does it take to make a book? And, and that varies from book to book. This is the result of, I mean, this is the second edition. So there's that, but there's all that experience in between. So, I mean, how long did this take to make? I mean, I have 25 years worth of notebooks. <laughs> so of, and I can just go back to them and look things up. And actually intensively working on it, maybe a couple of years. Mm -hmm. So testing recipes is very labour intensive and it's quite hard to plan because you don't know how long it will take. So sometimes a recipe will turn out great the first time. Sometimes you have to make it many times till it's right. So it's, it's quite irritating and expensive <laughs> and involves a lot of washing up. So yeah, so I find it, it's quite hard to balance the research and the writing with the recipe testing, because the recipe testing can just take over everything. And there's also the shopping, the clearing up, the writing up. So it's not just going and cooking a recipe. It, it takes a long time. Right. Yeah, but I suppose that what I, what I want to do with my books is give people a feeling for the subject and the place. I, want to, I don't want to write cold. For example, with my last book, Land of Fish and Rice, I think that was about 10 years from when I started getting seriously interested in the region and collecting recipes until I had friends there and I really kind of loved it and I felt that I, I, 
I just had a feeling for the region and what they were going on about with the food. And then I felt ready to write a book. The way I work now, I'm not just working on one book at a time. So when I'm in China, I, I'm usually working on one project, but I also try to go to new places and follow opportunities that just arise. You know, I meet someone and they say, oh, come here and I'll teach you how to make this or something. I'm just collecting information, not always in a very specific way, but for future projects as well. So it's like, you know, hatching different things and they hatch at different speeds, but because everything is a story. I mean, your your res, your recipe head notes are so rich with story and then collectively it tells the, the broader picture. Just imagine doing that over the course of <laughs> five books, right? So but I find it's very creative and it's very fun because in some ways writing a recipe book is easier than writing Shark's Fin and Citron Pepper, the memoir, because a lot of it is small vignettes like recipe head notes. But the thing is, you can put anything in them, and I love that about it. So it might be a story about a person or a place or the history of the dish or the history of the ingredient. And it's really fun. I never wanted to do a PhD when you have to do a, something to a formula that is suitable for academic acceptability. But with a cookbook, it can be anything you want it to be, and I just like that about it. Before we came up here, we kind of segued into a conversation about book design. And it was fascinating to hear your experience and how there's always a conversation between an author and the publisher about how a book looks, how the recipes are, are conveyed. And there's a little bit of tension in that, too. Yes. Well, I feel very strongly that the book has to look right and that I don't want someone Sichuanese to look at the book and say, oh, that's Japanese or that's... With Beijing chopsticks, style. Chopsticks are, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or that's, I don't want them to look at it and think, that's wrong, you totally misunderstood us or you're misrepresenting us. So um, it doesn't mean that all the props, for example, in the photographs have to be Chinese. In fact, I, I have quite a collection of, te- of dishes and things like that. And um, some of them are Vietnamese, but they remind me of Song Dynasty ceramic. I mean, they, they, they sort of fit in beautifully and some modern pieces that just look right, but I don't want them to jar. And so I am very lucky that, you know, my, my current publisher, they, they want to have a nice book and they want me to be happy with it. So it's very much a discussion and they suggest photographers and designers and things. And we have a discussion about it. And by now I trust them. I trust their judgment. But if I strongly, strongly objected, they probably wouldn't. But actually, with my first book, Land of Plenty, published in Britain as Sichuan Cookery. So that was my first book. And I had no experience of doing photo shoots for a book. And we had one design meeting and the designer had an idea of doing it in a very sort of graphic pop culture way with, I think, coloured backgrounds and very graphic And I said something about how I I wanted it to have more of a sort of country feeling and that Sichuan was this hearty sort of folk cuisine and that I wanted it to feel like that. And I also, for me, the most important thing was that the food looked very mouthwatering. And I thought I'd got the point across, but then when we started doing the shoots, it turned out that the brief hadn't changed And I was just incredibly upset and I felt that this was totally wrong and it was going to ruin the book. And I wrote this impassioned letter to the head of the publishing house or something. 
and just say, explained, you know, why I thought we were just getting it wrong. And to his credit, he, he just said, OK, well, we'll change the, the way we do it and listen to me. And I was very relieved about that because it would have felt terrible if I had just... Because it's so personal doing a book. You know, you really put, you, you put yourself into it and it's just... It would have been awful if I had just, you know, really disliked the... Yeah, and you cooked, you cooked the food for the photos as well. Yes. Right, yeah. Well, that's one thing that's particularly... You know, I think a lot of cookbook authors... Uh, there's a food stylist who does all the cooking. So they just have the recipes and you have a, a prop stylist and the food stylist does all the cooking and the author sometimes is there, sometimes isn't even there. But I can't do that because I'm trying to do food like some reference that I have in China. And so the Chinese chefs I know, firstly, they might have a different reference or a different style from the thing that I'm trying to evoke they won't be able to read the English recipes anyway and also it's a sort of personal like the way I do it it's my version of being faithful to the sources and a particular style yeah and and most of the food stylists in London will not be accomplished Chinese cooks and sometimes when I give recipes for magazines and they do their own shoot I just think like the cutting I'm very particular about the cutting and um, so I have to do it myself, and it's exhausting. But, um, <laughs> but it's okay. I, you're, you're so speaking my language right now because same thing for my book. I insisted on cooking all the food for that exact reason. Mm. Like it has to be real, and it has to be something that people might actually achieve at home, yeah. right? Okay. So one last question, and then we'll open it up for audience questions. What has been the most rewarding piece of this journey for you? The, the friendships and the the people and yeah and and the one really lovely thing is that you know I've known many of the chefs that helped me with this book for twenty years now and we sort of grown up together and I just find that very lovely and and also particularly because when I started out I was just an eccentric student who was supposed to be doing something academic and was actually more interested in food and I had nothing to show for myself but all these people were patient with me, let me into their kitchens, humoured me without, I mean, there was nothing in it for them. And now you know, people can see that the books have some impact and that I'm helping them get their message out. And so they're very supportive. But for many, many years, it was just purely selfless, kind, generous, you know, acceptance of this foreign woman trying to learn about Chinese food. And, and that I find very touching. That's fantastic. Wonderful. So now audience... Here's your chance. Anybody have questions? What's your mission and who are you trying to reach? Oh, well, the mission has always just been to get people to understand how fantastic Chinese food is, really, to share it with readers. And the really funny thing is that I have all along done it on the assumption that the audience are Westerners who don't really understand Chinese food. But increasingly, it seems that Chinese people are reading the books and using even the recipes. So Shark's Fin and Sichuan Pepper, my memoir, was published, was translated into Chinese and published in China last year and has done very well. <laughs> and this has been really surprising. So I did a book tour in China and I, I was also in a big Chinese food documentary last year and I've started getting recognised on the street in China a bit, <laughs> which is very surprising. And, um, but even more surprising is that this book is currently being translated into Chinese and will be published in China. 
So I don't know what people are going to make of it, but, but this thing, it has really surprised me. Just one example is that my neighbour in London is a young Hong Kong Chinese woman. And I found out from her boyfriend that she was cooking all the time from every grain of rice. <laughs> so I asked her one day, you know, you grew up in Hong Kong and you're Chinese, why are you cooking a <laughs> book written by an English woman? And she said, well, when I grew up, I didn't learn how to cook. I was studying all the time. And I know how the dishes should taste, but now when I call my mother and ask for a recipe, she just says, oh, add a little bit of this and add a bit of that. And it's too vague. So, yeah, and it just seems that actually quite a lot of people using the books are Chinese now. And not some, you know, American Chinese, British Chinese, but also Chinese people from China. So I, I really don't know what the reception of this book will be next year. And I'm curious, but I certainly never expected a recipe book to be published in Chinese. <laughs> well, congratulations, that's pretty stunning. How has the Western world changed in terms of people's um, experience with Chinese food and how has that affected the way that you write? Well, I, I, I've said this before, that the, my first proposal for a Sichuan cookbook was rejected by six publishers who all said that readers would not be interested in something as narrow as a Chinese regional cookbook. <laughs> Huge area. Uh, read them and weep. <laughs> They're sorry now. <laughs> but um, and and I, just that's one example of how much things have changed. So I think there are a number of factors. Possibly most important is that there's a whole new generation of Chinese people coming abroad to study, and representing something of the diversity of Chinese regions and Chinese foods. And they don't want to eat Americanized Cantonese food. They want to eat the food they like at home, which is often Sichuanese and other regional cuisines. And some of them are going into the restaurant business. Like if you look in New York, I mean, I don't know much about the Seattle scene, but How Noodle and Tea, uh, Cafe China, China Blue, these are all sort of new Chinese immigrants um, sometimes with a different sort of educational background, you know, very into the culture as well as the food and giving Western diners out a different take on Chinese food and Chinese culture. And the other thing is that there are so many restaurants now that are not really aimed at Western tastes at all. They're aimed at Chinese people. So it's much more authentic. And the other thing is that I think when I started learning Chinese in the early 90s, my friends thought it was such an irrelevant thing to learn. You know, China felt, to most people in the West, very remote. It had been closed off for a long time. Chinese would be completely useless. And when I went to university in Sichuan, my classmates, none of us were learning Chinese because we thought we'd get a good job or something, because we thought it would be useful. Everyone was doing Chinese for the most esoteric reasons. Like one of my classmates went there to learn martial arts, another Buddhism, another tea house culture, other people just to doss around. <laughs> you know, it was just, it wasn't seen as a career path at all. And that's all changed. So China is no longer a closed cultural revolution, poor country. China's a rising power. It's got lots of money. Um, there are lots of rich Chinese people coming and being visible in the West and, you know, appreciating the finer things of life, traveling. And that's just changed the way people think about food. I think it's raised the status of it. 
And with that has come sort of a greater awareness of Chinese culture. Also, the Chinese government is now trying to promote soft power through culture. So that's another thing, sponsoring all kinds of cultural activities. Also, more, I mean, still not huge numbers of people, but more Westerners are traveling to China for work, either briefly or for long periods or on holiday. And then just, it's, it's just, for a lot of people, it's been, it wasn't what they expected. And so in a sense, so from a practical point of view, writing a cookbook, it's so much easier to make the argument for regional cuisines. So I suppose that I try, like with my last book, Land of Fish and Rice, I was trying to showcase a region that is not really understood or known in the West. And I do try to do that. But with Sichuan, it's no longer trying to say, hey, there's this great unknown cuisine you should know about. Everyone knows about it. So it's made it easier and authentic ingredients are more, more available. Yeah. What has changed in the last 25 years in Sichuan as a, as a cuisine? And you know, where do you see things going? It's changing all the time. And in the 1990s, there really wasn't any Western food in Chengdu. There were a couple of fancy hotels that had Western food restaurants. And there was one very old Western food restaurant doing a really outdated mm. form of Western food. But most people were just eating Chinese foods. Most people were just eating Sichuanese food and maybe for a real splash out special occasion, a Cantonese restaurant, but that was about it. And now there's everything there. So there's really excellent French style patisserie. There are Thai restaurants and Japanese restaurants and pizza restaurants. So people have the opportunity to taste a whole range of different flavors. And um, so... There are all kinds of fusions going on. And there's a couple of examples that I've, you know, spring to mind. One is okra, which has become ubiquitous in just two or three years. And it did not exist in Chengdu when I was there in the 90s or even 10 years ago. And now every restaurant will have okra dishes. Um, salmon has become a thing, imported salmon, and that is not local. Um, <laughs> Uh, yes, I think there's just this very, a very vibrant foodie culture, a very competitive restaurant industry, and everyone's looking for the next big thing. But the important thing is to remember, this is not necessarily new. The Sichuanese think of their province and its cuisine as being very open and inclusive. Baorong is the word on everyone's lips. And um, the chili was a foreign import, still called hai jiao, sea pepper, because it came from abroad in Sichuanese dialect. That has only really been established in Sichuan for 200 years. There are a lot of what we know as Sichuanese cuisine now is quite recent, maybe 100 years old. And in the early 20th century, there were Western restaurants in, in Chongqing. You know, Chongqing was the wartime capital. There were American servicemen there. There were people from all over China. So I think um, Sichuan has always been a sort of melting pot. Um, and the pace is faster now. And maybe the reach is wider because of communications and things. But, um, but I do think it's also quite a confident cuisine and this sort of arts of flavours that you can apply to all kinds of ingredients without losing it. So my main concern is the loss of skills home cooking, which so many young people are not learning from their parents and grandparents. And I find this really tragic because the grandparents are... They know so much about cooking and pickling and curing meats and about healthy eating. And I'm, when I give talks in China, I'm always urging people, learn from your parents before it's too late. Yes. Well, thank you so much. Round of applause for Fuchsia. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you.
and thank you for very Many thanks to Fuchsia Dunlop for visiting us in Seattle and to Xiao Ching Chao for leading the conversation. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of The Food of Sichuan and any other books featured on Booklarder Podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code podcast at checkout. We have signed copies of many of the featured books in stock, so get one of those while they last. And if you visit us in the shop, just mention that you heard about a book on the podcast for 10% off in-store as well. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at BookLarder. For more information about BookLarder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit booklarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, visit us in person at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Laura Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.